Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And this week we are joined by Dr. Alex Sinclair, who is currently Chief Content Officer at Educating for Impact, an organization which works with Jewish day schools across Europe. For many years, he has formerly been a member of the faculty at JTS. He gained his PhD in Jewish education at Hebrew University. And also, he happens to be one of my old teachers as well, which is a very long time ago indeed. And Alex, it's great to have you with us, and we look forward to exploring Vayakel with you. I'm very excited to be here, Simon, and thanks for the invitation. Good. So I know we want to have a discussion, and I know that I'm also persona non grata with you for giving you this parasha as opposed to maybe something a bit more palatable earlier in Shemot or perhaps any of Bereshit or Devarim or elsewhere. But yeah. this is a particularly thorny one. And how do we approach it? Well, I feel like one of those bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah kids who gets uh, stuck with one of the miserable parashot, uh, you know, like, uh, it could have been worse. I was thinking about this before. You could have given me Tazriya Matsura or something like that. So I should be grateful for small mercies. I feel, you know, some of those, you go to these bar mitzvahs and the, the kids are reading these terribly age inappropriate and developmentally inappropriate verses from parashot in the middle of Vayikra or whatever. And you think, oh, if only they could have had a Bereshit or Lechlecha or something like that. And that's so why I feel a bit like that. I think that's actually where I was thinking that it would be interesting to start because, in my opinion at least, I think we should just be honest and say that some parashot are just boring and some parashot are outdated and some parashot are even offensive. And so what do we do about that? And that's actually, I think, the question that I would want to explore with you over these next few minutes. Like I said, there are worse ones than Vayakhel, but the truth is, as I've grown older, I've had less and less patience. Not that I had much to begin with, as you probably remember from when we studied together, but I've had less and less patience for apologetics about some of the parashot. There are some parashot that are powerful and compelling, and you read them, they could have been written yesterday. And there are others that aren't. And there are some like Vayakhel, you have some interesting pieces. The first few verses of Vayakhel start really, really promisingly about keeping Shabbat and not kindling fire. And it's like, oh, this could be interesting. And then you get into the, the long passages about dolphin skins and the lamps and God knows what. And, and I'm not so interested in those. And then as well as in terms of not being interested in those, I would want to take the question broader, which I think is a question that speaks to the kind of question that Louis Jacobs would have been interested in, which is what do we do in general with aspects of the tradition that don't speak to us or aspects of the tradition that offend us or that even outrage us that's a question that i'd want to think about and talk about with you today look forward to that can i just ask maybe visiting a slightly younger alex yeah. not the old but just a slightly younger alex was there no, anything about the I, i'm old it's okay i'm, I'm no, no, no. we're both in the same and <laughs> um, was there anything about the apologetics which in the beginning enticed you in 
Yeah, I think this is probably a bit of a journey that both of us went through in different ways. There were moments in my life, for sure, where the apologetics, and apologetics maybe is a little bit of a harsh word, but let's continue to use it. The apologetics enticed me, lured me in, the approach that says that even in parts of, whether it's Chumash or whether it's uh, parts of the Siddur, and I want to talk with you actually about, about Siddur as well, if we can, because I think that's where these things become really acute. But yes, certainly, if you don't understand it, it's your fault. And if you don't understand it, just think about it even more, and you'll eventually get there, like I'm kind of a kind of approach first do it and then you'll understand so I think there were definitely times in my life where that was more attractive I was going to say I outgrew that which is a very judgmental way of putting it and that's probably an unfair way of putting it but I, I think I moved past that pretty quickly it's much more interesting to think about these things more honestly without pulling punches rather than always to be looking for the apologetic approach. At the end of the day, that's why I don't define myself and I don't think I could ever define myself as an Orthodox Jew. I'm not an Orthodox Jew because, in part at least, because you have to pull too many punches to be in that world. And for some people that works, for me it doesn't work. So how then in exploring the way in which we do read this Sedra in Shul, how do we do it today? Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to take that question. I want to start from the fact that we do read it in shul. And I think that's really important. I, I have a, a friend, a member of my community in Modi'in in Israel, a reform rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yael Vorgan. And she's a friend and we regularly have these kinds of arguments at Kiddush, at shul. And she's a reform rabbi and liturgically she's much more into changing stuff and taking stuff out of the siddur to make it more meaningful and relevant and not saying things that you don't believe, like changing Aleinu and changing a bunch of things. And personally, I'm much more of a liturgical traditionalist. And I, I say to her, listen, I say, if you want me to start changing the Siddur and taking out things that I don't believe in, then I'm throwing the whole thing out. If you want me to take out of the Siddur everything that I don't believe, then the whole thing goes starting with Baruch Atta Adonai. And I think the same arguments have been made about Tanakh and about Torah. There are some people who say, let's not read the parts in Vayikra that talk about gay sex being an abomination, for example. Let's not read those or let's kind of not talk about those or take those out of the liturgy. And my position is no. I would call my position a theologically or philosophically radical one, but liturgically kind of hyper-conservative, philosophically hyper-radical, liturgically hyper-conservative. And I would almost say that the more radical you are theologically, the more conservative you should be liturgically for those reasons. Because if you make a direct line between your being radical from a theological or an academic or a scholarly or a philosophical perspective, and you make a direct line between that and how you practice Judaism, then you're going to lead yourself to a place where you're throwing away massive quantities of the tradition, which I think is a mistake as well. I would definitely start with, yeah, you read this stuff in synagogue because the original text does have power. The practice of reading the original text, the practice of staying true to that age-old tradition has a real power to it. There's a difference between reading Torah on Shabbat and talking about Torah on any other day of the week. I sometimes think about, I don't know if you know this book by Daniel Kahneman. It's a pretty famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow. I imagine many people have read it or heard of it or heard people talk about it. He, he talks about, he has this um, system one and system two. He, he says system one is, uh, let's make sure I remember it the right way around, right? Syst system one in the brain is when it's like things which you do naturally, you do them by instinct, you don't have to think about them very much, you do them with a kind of flow. The system one thinking is stuff that happens very innately and because you're so used to it. And system two is stuff that you have to stop and think about. System two is things you're not used to, that's more complex tasks. I would say that reading Torah on Shabbat should be system one. 
don't mess around with it. You do it as you've always done it. You read it, even the gross bits, even the outdated bits, even the stupid bits, even the immoral bits. And there's plenty of stuff that's immoral in the Torah and plenty of stuff that's stupid, I believe, uh, and plenty of stuff that's outdated and certainly plenty of stuff that's gross. But system one, you do it and there's a power to doing it in that system one, very natural kind of way. And then when Shabbat ends and you talk about Torah, then you're in system two. Everything's up for grabs. You slow down, you think, you analyze, you pull apart the historical sources, you talk about JEPD, you talk about the documentary hypothesis, you talk about the socially constructed nature of religion, going back to the very beginning, you talk about metaphor, you identify which parts are historical and which parts come from different backgrounds, etc. So Shabbat is system one, liturgically system one, but then when Shabbat ends, you go into system two. For me, that's a very powerful way of thinking about something like Vayak Hevel. Thank things. you. Thank you for bringing Daniel Kahneman into this week's podcast and a great template for how we might approach our Jewish identities, inshul and not inshul. I wonder, though, just thinking about it, whether the power of adhering to tradition provides the springboard for innovation and dynamism. Mm. Perhaps the problem that progressive Judaism has in cutting itself away from the rootedness of tradition, and perhaps unfortunately, therefore, at least down the road or generations later, lacking the ability to tap into the full rootedness of tradition as being able to provide innovation and dynamism down the line that without that connection, it can't have. Yeah, I think it's a great question. But let's say the reform movement or, or let's say more progressive liturgical and Jewish approaches teach me a lot, teach us a lot. And I think that they make the Jewish world a much richer place. On the one hand, I think that without that dynamism that you talk about and that no holds barred approach to let's just do whatever the hell we like and see how the cookie crumbles, that does provide an energy to the Jewish world, which I think without it, the Jewish world would be more impoverished. On the other hand, for me at least, and maybe it's a personal preference more than anything else, something is lost when you deviate too far from the tradition. I think that sometimes we can be too quick to dismiss traditional tropes in tefillah, in Shabbat practice, in all kinds of aspects of Jewish life. In that sense, there is a power of the Na'asev Nishma. There is a power of that kind of, you know, swim in it for a bit, let it seep into you. And even if it doesn't make sense, it still does make sense. That There's a great story that Avram Infeld always tells. Avram Infeld, great Jewish educator and leader. I'll probably botch it. I won't tell it nearly as well as he does. He was at some kind of Shabbaton with a bunch of American kids and Israeli kids or some kind of Friday night. I don't know what. And it came to the time where it was benching. And the American kids are all singing the benching out loud and doing all the hand movements and the hoopla that you do and that you learn in youth movements. And the Israeli kids, who I guess are a bunch of secular kids, kids uh, in, in this kind of mifgash were kind of staring like silent and not and not doing anything and somebody said to Avram I said what's going on here the, the, the Israeli kids aren't saying anything but the American kids who don't speak Hebrew and and and, and don't have anything like as much Jewish serious content as they're singing what's going on so Avram said right the Americans are singing it and they don't understand the words the Israelis aren't singing it because they do understand the words it's a great story, but there's a, there's a certain power to quote unquote singing it when you don't understand the words or singing it even though you do understand the words and you don't like the words. It's a great story. I think it, on the one hand, it shows the power of you know, the mimetic 
power yeah. of yeah, yeah, yeah. transfer and how it seeps in. And I wonder if actually almost holding both together enables us to somehow contain paradox, which is so important for what Jewish tradition is all about. Right, but there are times where I think even for me, where it goes too far. I think this is interesting about where are the points where, okay, so, you know, I don't say for me, that is one place of the Siddur that I delete, even on Shabbat, even during Tefillah. In some Masorti Siddurim, it removes in the Shemona Esra, in the Amidah. Instead of saying, it just says, right? Instead of saying, and talking about returning the sacrifices of Israel and their prayer. So it deletes and says, just returning prayer. And I do that. I don't say the Ishe Yisrael. Anymore. So, and so there's places there where, where even I'm saying, okay, all the talk about being a liturgic, what did I say? Hyper conservative, liturgical or whatever. So for me, even there's a place where I would say enough already with that. And Yeshivul, there's a, there's a limit to, to, to what I would want to say. But I think I'm pretty conservative with a small C about where those places are. Is there a template to construct where we can determine the boundaries? Yeah. Look, at first of all, I do think it's got to be different for different people. What I'm talking about is not a prescription for everybody. What I'm saying works for me and maybe doesn't work for many other people, which is why this is a whole nother conversation, which is why the Masorti movement is still a minority movement in the world today. That's a whole nother conversation. What works for me apparently clearly doesn't work for a lot of other people. A lot of other people don't find this approach, I guess. Uh, Maybe it's compelling in a certain way, but it doesn't catch fire in some ways in the Jewish world, maybe because it's of its complexity, I don't know. So I don't know if there's a template. I think that there's a template that probably works for everybody as an individual. And I know that there's many people who I love and respect and admire who fall into other places on this spectrum. There are some people who would like even more, let's say, liturgically conservative with a small seed than me, and some people who are much more progressive. So I do think it's an individual thing. But again, for me, and I learned this from Louis Jacobs, who I know is an inspiration behind this podcast and your website and everything. I learned this from him. I learned this from Jonathan Wittenberg. Um, and, and I think Bialik actually said it originally, Lahavdil. I won't be able to get the quote exactly right. But he says, Al Don't mess around too much when it comes to liturgical changes. Make changes, but don't Don't be a smart ass. I guess is that would be the translation. But again, to go back to that Kahneman kind of system one, system two thing, I, I'm talking about don't be a smart ass on Shabbat or during Tefillah if you're a weekday davener, which I'm not these days, or the way that we approach texts in any kind of liturgical or spiritual capacity. Don't But when it comes to learning, when it comes to anything that's outside a ritual, then everything has to be up for grabs. Uh, I'm just going to put a different spin on this. There is also within the tradition, obviously what we have as the power of interpretation. And there's also probably a fine line, I'm sure you'll argue, will agree, that there's a fine line between apologetics and interpreting, yeah. reinterpreting yeah. The, the power of Midrash. And I just wonder, it seems that even some of those difficult elements do have the ability to be rehabilitated in all sorts of ways. Even plenty of non-contentious or seemingly non-contentious things have the ability to be reinterpreted in generation after generation. I think I've referenced this before on a podcast. We only need to say the first line of Shema to know that literally throughout history, it has changed and evolved over and over again. 
I just wonder how you navigate like that yeah. and, and how you resonate with those things. Yeah. Look, I agree with you. And I think that Midrash has the power to do all of those things. I love Midrash. The thing that sometimes makes me uneasy about Midrash is when people mix up Midrash with Pshat or people mix up Midrash with quote unquote what it actually means. And then I think we get into dangerous territory. And I really do mean dangerous. When one is doing Midrash, one has to be aware that one is playing a hermeneutic game. One has to be aware that this is Midrash. This is me reading into the text, which doesn't mean to say it's not valid, doesn't mean to say that it's not legitimate, but it's a certain kind of reading. It's a certain kind of activity. It's me reading into the text or me playing with the text or me understanding the text acontextually or ahistorically. And that's great, as long as you're aware of the rules of the game that you're playing. The danger is when you start doing Midrash and you forget the rules of that game and suddenly Midrash becomes shut. Midrash becomes what the text actually meant. Midrash becomes what we're meant to then do with the text. That's a word of caution about at least how Midrash is sometimes used. I feel a bit bad. I feel like the Grinch who stole Midrash. I don't want to come across that way, but I think Midrash definitely has the potential to quote-unquote save or redeem some of these really, really difficult texts. As long as you're aware that it's not really redeeming them, or it's redeeming them only within, like I said, the rules of a certain hermeneutic game. Maybe trend, we might draw on your story with Avram Infeld and discuss how we teach kids and how we pass this on yeah. to kids. Yeah. Because enabling kids with the ability to digest system two, we can't go directly to. Right. This is the great challenge and the great paradox of Jewish education in today's world, in my opinion, which is that the ideal graduate of a Jewish educational program or what we're shooting for in terms of what we want our kids to get to is that we want them to be both system one and system two when it comes to Jewish texts and Jewish practices and, and Jewish living. In other words, that you, you want Jewish educational systems to train kids to be able to do stuff to be able to be Jewish, to be able to do Jewish. And, and this actually relates to the organization that I work for right now, Educating for Impact, where we deeply believe in the importance of Jewish behaviors. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's got to be from and Shomer Shabbat and X, Y, and Z, but Jews doing Jewish things and being able to do Jewish things with other Jews, that is an old Hillel tagline, which I just butchered or played with or midrashized. That's a really important outcome of Jewish education. You want kids to be able to do Jewish in a system one kind of way, naturally, and with Without thinking about it and just being able to do this stuff because it's kind of part of them and so you want that and on the other hand you want them to be system two people as well because you want them thinking about everything and not accepting stuff that they're told there's a neil postman a great progressive educator from america from the 60s 70s and 80s that wrote about good education is about teaching kids to become crap detectors i hope i'm allowed to use this kind of language on the on the podcast you can beep it if not but there's something very powerful about that be a crap detector don't take things at hand think about things challenge argue analyze push authority don't accept authority that's really important as well so you need both at the end of the day that's why i am who i am as a jew because i believe in both i believe in the doing in a system one kind of way more or less <laughs> and i believe in that system two crap detecting and i think any kind of judaism which doesn't have both of those 
is to me an inauthentic kind of Judaism and a dangerous kind of Judaism. I would even use that word. I think that certainly when you get to system one without system two, it's extraordinarily dangerous. We see that in various parts of the Jewish world today. And I think that system two without system one is not dangerous. That's not right. But system two without system one, for me at least, is not robust enough. And I think not what we should be arguing. But that's the challenge. How, how do you educate kids towards being able to live with system one and system two in their Jewish lives? It's extraordinarily difficult because it's a fine line, it's a sweet spot to navigate between. If kids end up being only in that system one, unthinking, practice-only, apologetics Jewish world, that concerns me gravely. And if kids end up without that and only in the system two, thinking only in the challenging and the crap detecting and the analysis without the power of that traditional living then that raises questions about continuity and about robustness. And so the challenge of Jewish education is how do you do both? And there are relatively few examples in the Jewish world today of successes of doing that both. And that's a sobering thought, but I think that there are examples where people have really succeeded in doing that, or systems have really succeeded in doing that. Not that many. Just to maybe push you finally on what the one or two are that we can point to as um, shining lights. I'm not going to rise to the bait because whatever I say will upset somebody who I didn't mention or whatever. So with respect, I'm not going to rise to that bait. Rather than look for examples and say, oh, this is and that isn't, I would say to use this as a vision, as a template to strive for for Jewish educational systems, whether that's day schools or camps or or synagogues or or whatever. How do you strive for that vision where Jewish behaviour is taken for granted is natural is is enjoyed is just done and at the same time no holds barred no punches pulled absolute honest historical academic intellectual jewish learning and thinking and discussion is welcomed when there's no question that is not kosher there's no question which is out of bounds there is no challenge which is not welcomed so that's the vision Alex, thank you so much for exploring that with us, all sparked from Vayakal, which we look forward at the end of the week on Shabbat to putting on our System 1 hat and consuming, and then going back to our System 2 hat for for next week's podcast. But thank you so much for, for being part of this week's. And I do promise you, next time, we do look forward to welcoming you back for Lech Lecha or something. Yeah, I want a good bit of Avraham or a good, nice part of the Joseph story or, or something like that. That's what I want. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've thrown your hat into the ring and look forward to welcoming you back for one of those. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about our exciting content that we have for you on our mothership, jewishquest.org we do look forward to seeing you again next week bye